It's a wonderful honor for me to introduce to you Emilio. He is a great friend of our congregation, though many of you have yet to meet him. He was working on his PhD uh, beginning in 2008, and it's hard for those of us that do know you to remember that that began almost 15 years ago. He served here as our Director of International Ministries for the three years that he was here uh, at RTS. He and Annalise became wonderful friends uh, of many in our congregation, in part because they displayed a beautiful Christ-likeness. He is... uh, a man who beams with a zeal for the gospel. He is a people person. And uh, we became uh, fast friends and uh, lovers of that family deeply. He's a Presbyterian minister in Brazil. He's also a lecturer in some of the uh, seminaries of the Presbyterian uh, uh, institutions there. He's an accomplished author. Some of us that know him well did not know that when he relaxes, he loves to write Christian fiction and has published 14 books. So I want you to be aware of that. He's married to the beautiful Annalise, who will be here at our second service, and a proud father to Deborah. Our last hour when we spent together in 2011, we were praying together, and he said something I will never forget and have used many times since. How lovely it is when the Lord chooses to weave our biographies together. Brother, it is a delight to have you home here with us and that you uh, have woven your biography together through the Lord with us. Come and preach, brother. I want to greet you all in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is a pleasure to be here and an immense joy to have received this invitation to serve you with God's word. And we are delighted to see so many of you again and to meet new people that we had never had the pleasure before. I won't say much about how much I miss you, otherwise I won't be able to preach. It might get you emotional for me. So let's preach then. I invite you to open your Bibles in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And one thing I'll say though is this, I do miss the orange. Where's the orange? Some people have some. Good. Good. New Barnes has some. Good. Very good. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll uh, preach on chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and I invite you to open your Bible. This is God's word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. 
and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let us pray. Lord, we bless your name for this passage. We thank you because you inspired your son Solomon to write it. And we pray that this morning, as we explore it, you would teach us and help us to live. In Jesus we pray. Amen. There are many words which are hard to translate. If you ever toyed with learning another language, you know that there is no such thing as a one-to-one -one correspondence of all words in other languages. Sometimes you need three or four words to convey one word from a language into that. You probably heard of such thing. In my own language, Portuguese, we have a word that is saudade, which is what I feel towards you. It conveys the sensation of a deep longing for a person, a thing, or even a time that is no longer with us. It is more than nostalgia. We like to brag that saudade is impossible to translate. There is no one-to-one -one word. It's not just nostalgia. But I did find recently an attempt to translate it into English. It goes like this. You have to take nostalgia, intense desire, a bit of sadness, and affection. Mix it up with sugar, salt, and a shot of cachaça while listening to a samba. Yeah, that's pretty good, actually. <laughs> you know, there are some words in English which are very hard to translate into Portuguese. Insight, awkward, jinx. We don't have one word for that. We need two or three to convey the same ideas. And I've been researching some of these words. I'll give you five to, to flesh it out. For example, in Japanese, there is an expression. It's age otori. That's when you look worse off after you have your hair cut. <laughs> age otori. You've been there, haven't you? There's a word in Ghana. It's pelinti. And that refers to the action when you keep tossing hot food from one side to the other inside your mouth to cool it down. That's pelinti. The Indonesians have a word, it's jayas, meaning a joke so poorly told and so unfunny that one cannot help but laugh. <laughs> Some of you are quite good at jayas, aren't you? No, I, my favorite is this one, it's Drachenfutter. It's from German, and it literally means dragon food. It's how the Germans call the little gift a man buys his wife on the way home when he knows she's angry at him. <laughs> dragon food. You gotta feed the dragon. Appease the dragon. It's wise. The French have this expression, it's le prix de calier, the spirit of the stairs. You all been there, we all have. It's what happens when you're having a, a discussion with somebody, an argument, but you can't think of a comeback. Nothing to say, but the moment you leave the place, the moment you leave the room, the, the perfect comeback comes to your mind, but it's too late. You are at the stairs, and it's too late now. No, there are words that are hard to translate, and Ecclesiastes has some of them. But Ecclesiastes is about more than a word. It's a book written to describe a sensation, a feeling, that it's itself very hard to put into words. Solomon takes the whole book to accomplish it. We'll look at just the beginning of it. But what is it? 
Solomon takes Ecclesiastes and he writes it in order to explain to us why it is that we have this sensation that this world is at the same time very good, very valuable, very interesting, but unsatisfactory, broken, even depressing. That even in the best this world has to offer, it is ultimately imperfect and lacking. And both believers and unbelievers experience this. This haunting, if you will, of a world that we somehow lost. But even though we lost it, it is still perceived. We can still feel the shards of it. And we do step on them barefoot sometimes. This world is great, and yet it does not satisfy us. And this tension corrodes and moves us. This comes and goes. There are days in which you are completely satisfied with your life. Always well, family, plan, jobs. And then in the very next day, you feel like life has no meaning. It's vain, it's useless, it's meaningless. I know, for this a fact, I know this for a fact, and I know that you feel the same. Solomon felt the same way. All your social media posts tell me that you feel the same. The pop culture you consume tell me that you feel the same. And today, in this very first section of Ecclesiastes, we will begin looking at this. Of course, Ecclesiastes warrants a full and a complete study to see this properly. But in this very first passage, you'll be able to understand some of it. And we will today investigate how life really works. We will see today that without God, this world is only frustration, but with him, it is full of meaning. That's the message. Without God, this world is only frustration, but with him, it is full of meaning. And I'll show you this in three, three points. The first one is that life is fragile and frail. Look again at the first two verses, please. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes is a hard book to read. It scares me. And maybe it scares you as well. Many Christians have a difficult relationship with Ecclesiastes. They find it depressing or somewhat cynical, a book that they want to skip in their yearly Bible reading plan. Ecclesiastes has been intriguing Christians and unbelievers for centuries now. But why is it so fascinating? I believe it's because of this universal sensation that I mentioned, that it explains the human experiences so well, and yet makes us question where our hearts are. A theologian called Philip Ryken tells us, suggests that we should think of Ecclesiastes as the only biblical book written on a Monday morning. <laughs> and that, that works. And it deals with deep questions. Who are we? What is really valuable in my life? How can I measure whether I was useful or not to my generation? Am I leaving something of worth for the ones who come next? Solomon has been through a lot when it comes to this point where he writes this book. He loved the Lord and then his heart went astray, but he did come back and lived to write about it. And in the book he explains that all those things that people believe will be the source of meaning in life are not going to work. He tried it all. He tried wealth, he tried knowledge, he tried leisure, he tried power, he tried wine, he tried women and more women. He tried everything. And he lived to tell us that if you think you will find your meaning of life in those things, you'll just be frustrated. And he begins telling us, all is vanity. And this is a very hard to translate word. 
What you have here as vanity is a Hebrew word, it's hevel. And in, if you have another Bible translation, you may ha have it listed as meaningless or futility or vanity. It really depends because it's not easy to translate. Those are not bad translations at all. But it's not the vanity of somebody who is just there staring in, at the mirror for hours and hours and finding himself so beautiful or anything like this. It has to do, in Hebrew, with the idea of some sort of mist, of vapor, something that is almost impossible to grasp. Children, it's like when you're, it's cold outside and you're speaking and there's, you can see your breath, you can see that mist. That's Hevel. Can you hold on to that? No, it's gone. It's here and it's gone in a second. And isn't life like that? Consider your own life. Where have the years gone? What happened to your youth, your health, your stamina? When I left this town, I was such a young puppy. <laughs> Our life is like a morning fog that soon dissipates, as James says. Every decade of life seems to go by faster than the previous one. Remember when you were 12, how long it took to turn 18 or 16 or whatever it is that you can drive? But the decade from 40 years old to 50, that goes by very quickly. 50 to 60, even more. Life is ephemeral, life is frail. You know that. A ridiculously small virus, an accident, an evil man. And you're gone. We mankind are fascinated with such an idea, with this frailty of our existence. And there's evidence of this in the endless creativity of our filmmakers and, and fiction writers regarding how this world will end. Our movies show the world ending by zombies attacks or earthquakes or tsunamis or alien invasions or nuclear wars, whatever. There are many works that are dystopian future showing that the world can go wrong quickly. Everybody knows this. The world is frail. The world as we know it may change very quickly. And we keep creating things, we keep thinking of plans and try to erase this simple truth from our minds. Who can live like that, thinking that this may be your very last worship service? Life is very frail. There is no guarantee you'll be here next week. And that's the first point that Solomon points us. Life is ephemeral. Life goes by quickly. Second point, life is frustrating and repetitive. Verse 3. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? The preacher then begins to explore the possibilities of what life is about. He will weight the possibilities. Maybe by describing this world as vanity, as vain, as everything being vain, maybe he's oversaying it, maybe he's overstating it. Maybe he's overreacting to a bad day. So the question he poses is, is life worth fighting? Is it worth? Is there anything to be gained from my toils under the sun? The word he brings here is connected to commerce, to trade, the ingrained idea that if you try hard, if you work hard, if you strive, you will have gain, you will have profit. But Solomon tells us, well, maybe, but it's not always so. A man may very well look at his life's efforts and notice that he has been toiling for years and decades, and yet there is so little to show for it. 
a man may look at his life and see that in important areas he has even backtracked. Maybe it's your case, you work day in and day out. Okay, you have some gadgets to show for it. But even your toys can break quickly, as the children just heard. But is it really worth all the time you spent in work? A pastor may look at his ministry and his congregation, and even though he loves them, he may look at these people and say, wow, they keep falling back in the same old patterns, the same old sins. Won't they ever learn? Some of you will be ordained as elders and deacons tonight. It can be frustrating working with people. Parents may look at the effort they put into raising their children and be discouraged. Oh, they do change, but it seems like so much doesn't change. Is there real profit to my labors? And there is also the sameness of everything that he brings forth in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It's interesting to think about generations. All this talk of Gen, Gen X and millennials and the differences between groups. But you know how this goes. Every generation sees itself as perhaps the culmination of human history. But phrases such as, the more things change, the more they remain the same, they are true. Generation comes and go, and the earth, and the earth remains the same. We fight, we try, we seek to promote change. We seek to resist change. We do foolish things, we sweat, we die. And it seems like every new generation has to fight the same battles all over again. It seems like apostasy, for example, is only a generation away. And this is tiresome. At times, we are tempted to think of ourselves as the apex of civilization. Or another way of saying it, sometimes we do think that we had it good, but the next generation, those kids, they are a mess. But we had it right. When we were young and we were in charge of the world, it was a better place. Youth has ruined it. Once a man complained, the children now love luxury. The children have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Thus complained the philosopher Socrates thousands of years ago. It seems like us complaining about the children. Generations come and go, and the earth is the same. In nature, it doesn't seem to be very different. Solomon looks at nature and sees perhaps things will be different then. But then he looks at, please see verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All strings run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon looks at nature, and the way his eyes notice, it's all the same. Oh, there comes a sunrise, all right, and then the sun goes around the sky and sets, and next morning, will it be different? Same old. Come on. What's going on? It's all the same all the time. The rivers are flowing into the sea, but the sea is never full. It's an endless task. All this work, all this labor, all this toil, and nothing changes. 
It's useless. It's the same with the animals in their life cycles. It's the same with us as well. How are your New Year's decisions going? Three weeks about, they're doing well, all right? For example, you decide to lose some weight this year. You exercise, you diet, you work hard, and you lose some weight. But is the battle over forever? Of course not. Stop exercising and eating well. Guess who will come back to haunt you? You'll find those pounds, Krispy Kreme or something like this. They're there, they're there, just waiting for you. You'd care for your bad knee, your bad kidney, your bad hips, your bad heart. And you need to keep watching this for the rest of your life. Laundry. Can you ever say about laundry? Laundry is done forever. <laughs> we have overcome. Laundry is finished. No. The dishes, are they cleaned forever? No. Tomorrow they'll be piling up again. It's the same old. It's wearisome. All such things are wearisome more than one can say. The eyes and the ears are never satisfied. You have, let's say, big love for music or movies or sports or TV series. When will you get to the point that you'll be satisfied with them? Never. There's always a new tournament. There's always a new movie. There's always a new song, a new album release or whatever. A new season of your favorite series is lurking around the corner. You have joy, but it's soon gone. And with human history, it's not different. What has been, verse 9, what has been, it is all what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Isn't it like this with human history as well? Oh, there are big empires, and there is the Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Roman Empire, whatever empire it is. They grow, they dominate, and then there is in inward fighting. The empire crumbles, rinse and repeats. Human history is the same old. Okay, we do have some changes, small. We make flying machines, for example, that do make life easier for Brazilians who want to visit Mississippi. Instead of taking a boat for months, we fly. Okay, we do use our smartphones to do all sorts of things. But has any of it really brought peace to the human heart? Has any of it quenched our thirst? Or have all of those things only become a new outlet for us to speak about the old pains? Even our technology, what's really new about it? Think of the microwave woven. It's just another way to warm up foods. We've been doing this with fire for years, centuries. The airplane only does what birds always did. Or maybe the remote control. That's a new thing, isn't it? No, it only takes over from your youngest child, the job of getting up and changing the channel. There's really nothing new under the sun. And it is the same with your life projects as well. You have experienced this in your life. As soon as you finish something great, important, valuable, you are happy with yourself, you are proud of your achievements for a while. Your boss is happy with you, but a few months go and it's like it never happened. What did you actually gain from doing all your job? More work, a heavier load. You care for your children today and tomorrow you have to do it all over again. You explain to your husband where the shoes should be in the house. And he never learns. You have to explain all over again. The ears and the eyes are never satisfied. 
You eagerly await for a given vacation, a given movie, and a few months later, the longing is there again. You dream of a job, and then after a few weeks, it's not so dreamy anymore. You check your Instagram feed's timeline. You laugh, you fight, you argue, you like, you share, and then 10 minutes later, there you are again. Nothing new happened. Why are you back there? Your eyes are never satisfied. Verse 11 points to a very harsh reality. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. Many of the things that we consider so important to our hearts, our triumphs, our deeds, our pleasures, our trophies. Let me tell you, Solomon is telling us, they'll be forgotten in a few years. In a few years, nobody will remember. A few days after, you might remember the pleasure you had, but you won't feel the pleasure itself. In a few decades, people will not even remember you, brother. You may be remembered for a couple of generations. Let me ask you, do you know the name of all your great-grandparents? Do you know their names? All eight of them? What about the generation before them? All 16 of them? Your great-grandchildren may not even know your name. You may be nothing more than a photographic curiosity in a family album or a Google Drive. And Solomon is telling us, sorry to say, guys, but as long as you keep looking for meaning in the things in this life, you will only be frustrated. And if you're not frustrated yet, soon you will be. There is a third point that we need to work. Life makes sense, though, before God. You must see something here at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes that will guide your reading of the book. And it's this expression in verse 3. Under the sun. Do you see it? Under the sun. That's the key. If you examine reality merely through the lenses of what you see, what you feel, what you experience, life will be like this, frustrating and meaningless and vain. However, if you understand that this is how life is under the sun, looking only here in this horizontal perspective, everything will change. Let me exemplify with this. Imagine an alien arriving on Earth in his beautiful spaceship. I mean alien, like green and all that. He lands on Earth, but he doesn't land on beautiful Mississippi, but he lands in Sarajevo during the Balkan Wars in the 90s. Or maybe this alien of ours, he lands in Aleppo in Syria during the Civil War. He looks around and everything is wrecked. The walls are crumbling, buildings are kind of torn, there are bullet holes everywhere, blood smears, torn bodies here and there, smoke coming out of buildings, tortured cars, there is very little joy. Now, this alien doesn't know that Sarajevo or Aleppo or wherever have just gone through a war. And he would look at this world and say, wow, those humans are very weird. This is how they decorate their walls with blood. This is their architecture. They begin building, but they only do it halfway. He would look at war-torn country and imagine this is how it goes. 
And that's us. We were all born in a war-torn country, in a war-torn world. None of us saw the world before the fall. We only lived in this broken world. And if you don't know that, if you only consider life under the sun to be normal, then you'll try to find meaning in all those things, in work, in pleasure, in filling your eyes and ears with things, and you'll be frustrated over and over again. Ecclesiastes is a book designed to make you look above the sun, to make you consider life not only down here, but transcendental, looking above, trying to understand what comes from God to us. That's what Paul said in Romans 8, the passage we read earlier. He deals with the same idea that this world is frustrating, it's full of vanity, it malfunctions, it's not the way it was designed to be. When Solomon wrote these words, nothing new had happened yet in the world. But some centuries later, something new did happen. The incarnation of God. When the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, walked in this earth, he wrote himself into history and came to radically change this world, bringing with him the last era of this world before the consummation of all things. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the new fact that changes all this. There is no hope under the sun for us. Our hope came from above the sun to dwell among us, full of grace, full of truth. And that's where Ecclesiastes points us. He points you to stop considering life as you know it's only here and try to find meaning in the things above. And the beauty of it is that when you begin to see life through the lenses of scripture, when you begin to see life through God's eyes, all those things change. For example, the repetition of nature that Solomon spoke about, there goes the sun again, same old path. But when you look through the eyes of scripture, what do you see? You see as Psalm 19 portrays, a champion or a groom, a bridegroom going in triumph. When you look at the patterns of nature, just with human eyes, okay, there goes another stream filling up the sea. But when you see it with God's eyes, look at Psalm 104, for example. It will be a good afternoon reading for you, Psalm 104, or Job 38. Those passages look at creation in a majestic way. If Solomon says, our work is in vain, through Jesus Christ, Paul says, in the Lord our work is never in vain. And that's what changes everything. Nowadays, our eyes are not never filled and cannot find lasting pleasure. But if we do set our eyes in the coming world, even this very world will seem to be brighter with our ears tuned to the whispers of an upcoming glorious reality. Revelation 21 talks about God preparing a new earth and a new heaven. With no more sin, nothing subjects to this vanity, to this fallenness, to this meaninglessness. No more hevel. And Ecclesiastes is a book designed to somewhat rudely remove from your heart the vain hopes of finding lasting joy under the sun. Solomon tried it all. And he'll tell you, chapter after chapter, you think wisdom will give you this? 
You think money will give you joy? And he will rudely remove those hopes. An author called Benjamin Shaw put it in this way. For you wondering about Christ in this book, this is the world Christ came to save. This is the world he came to inhabit. For the sake of his people, he submitted himself to this kind of life with its repetition, its ordinariness, its seemingly failure to make progress. So when this vision of life brings you frustration and disappointment, do remember that Christ did not come to make you successful in this life, but to save you from its fallenness as well as yours, and to bring you finally into a world where nothing is ordinary and where everything is new. Understanding life with this perspective, brethren, the message of Ecclesiastes, as another author put, puts, it's not that nothing matters. It is that in the face of God, everything matters. I know that all of you here, even if you do not consider yourself a Christian, you have to deal with this sensation. There are wonderful days followed by awful ones. And it's hard to balance those things. The sensation is hard to put into words. It's hard to translate. Do not avoid it. Do not, try, do not try to numb it down with endless entertainment or whatever. Look this frustration in the eye. Deal with it before God. Examine what God is saying about who we are and what this world is. You've heard it today, and it's foolish to pretend it did not. <coughs> we live in a world like this. We write stories and sing about such sensation. We try to make this vapor, this breath, last. That is vanity. I call you all to look above the sun and look for the one who came from there. Look for him who came to redeem us along with this world and who will himself make all things new. Let us pray. We bless your name, Lord, because with Jesus in the picture, everything changes. Without him, we do keep looking for meaning and joy and lasting joy in created things, and we are always frustrated. It may take a while, but we get frustrated. We praise your name because Jesus came from above the sun, and he came to change this world. He subjected himself to this agony, this this meaninglessness of this reality, the difficulty of walking on this earth for decades. He tasted what it is to be us, yet without sin. And we praise your name because through his work, we expect a new world in which there won't be any vanity, only the joy of a recreated earth without sin. While this reality doesn't come to us, we ask that would help us to see this world as broken. And yes, to do find some joy, even in the brokenness of it, in the glimpses we have of what, of what you've been doing to us. We praise your name in Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>